This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Scree Gear, and we're inching closer and closer every day to the national holiday of opening day of deer season, and we uh, have been doing this for a couple years now, and Scree continues to support the podcast, and we're very grateful for that, and we want to encourage you, if you're in the market for new hunting gear, specifically lightweight performance layering style of hunting gear there's a a, you know really a trend in the market for that style of things with a lot of brands coming coming about and 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 really hitting the marketplace hard and and where scree kind of uh sets itself apart it's it's a direct to consumer business so the price point is much lower and the customer service the warranty structure the uh the sizing guarantees that they offer all of those things really set them apart the, the gears of the same quality as their competitors. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've said it multiple weeks, but it's uh, it's really a great value if you look into the bundles because you can get everything you need and then you can even build out with more pieces unless you want to go get the extreme bundle and get everything. But they bundle things up and those, th- those bundles are sold at an already discounted rate. So, um, you know, it's, it's a great value if you want to look into doing that. But either way, if you're in the market, uh, really encourage you to go out, follow them on social media, go subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can see lots of information, see the gear being used in the field and all of those sort of things and uh, try it and uh, 
you know, see for yourself. Shop online at screegear.com. Joining me on the podcast today, my esteemed uh, part-time co-host, Levi. What's up? Hello. Hello. No Ola this time, Is my right? mic? <laughs> no. No Ola. So we're Making sure my microphone wasn't echoing. No, no echo. Uh, also joining us today for this podcast is two names that you might recognize. Pretty active in the Louisiana Bowhunter community, Austin Bradford and Trevor Curtis. How you guys doing? Oh, we're good. Pretty good. So we're gonna um, um we're gonna talk a little bit on this podcast. Uh, kind of our our designated topic, if you if you if you want to put it that way, we're gonna talk about some preseason strategies specifically for hunting public land. Austin and Trevor are both seasoned public land hunters and uh, really kind of make their hay hunting in that style. So we're going to get some feedback from them about, uh, you know, some of the things that they've learned and maybe some tips and tricks that they've, uh, that they use to be successful hunting that way. And uh, I know a lot of people that follow the community are, are kind of, um, you know, public land is not quite the same in the south. Out in some of our neighboring western states where there's large tracts of, of public land and, and really most hunting opportunity is on public land, we're very fragmented in that way, but you can be very successful. We're going to talk about that. Um, before we do that, I want to mention something because I've been working on it today. And um, as we're recording at this I'm obviously here and present and on the podcast, but when you listen to this, I will be on my final day of elk hunting in the mountains of northern Utah, and hopefully I'm not hunting. Hopefully I'm sitting at camp fishing and cooking and just because I killed my elk, like I told Levi a couple episodes ago on the first day, like a mile from the camp. Um, Hopefully, but I could be just kind of like trying to get in those last few miles and try to try to get in getting into some elk and, and getting a shot on my last day um but as i'm here and i'm home today what i've been doing before i leave we got some new stuff from louisiana bowhunter that's different we got some um paracord braided wrist straps for your bow with the louisiana bowhunter logo in a leather engraved uh patch on those and we also got some arrow wraps and some bowing, boning. How do you pronounce that, Levi? Is it bowing or boning? Boning. <laughs> I Bo- say boning, boning like, the air, <laughs> like the airplane company. I know it's probably wrong, but that's how I pronounce it. I don't like saying boning. Boning doesn't sound right, but I think it has it. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't. It has You're an right. N in it, though. Yeah. It, it, it's B-O-H-N. So, yeah. anyway. We got blazer veins with our logo on them, and I'm just curious from you guys. Uh, I know a lot of guys build their – do you all build your own arrows? Uh, at times I do. This year I bought some that were pre-fledged, but I've about ripped off half of them, so I'm about to start building some more. Yeah, I just got into the last year or so of building some my own, and used to I'd, I'd just order them online and – kind of do my own thing with them when they would mess up here and there. But the last year or so, I just started doing my own. So. Um, well, I 
used to build a lot of arrows, and I used to be, like, really into that, and I would try all kinds of different configurations. I actually went through a couple of years where I four-fletched all my arrows. I don't even know why, because I was shooting an expandable broadhead like I needed four-fletchings for that. But um, I would get all kind of different wraps, and so I've got the whole jig and all set up, but I've kind of gotten away from doing it the last couple of years, but... I, I, it's curious that, um, I actually, maybe I'm just not good at it, but you mentioned that you, you, you're starting to tear fletchings off. I mean, are, are you, when you build your own arrows, do you, you find that you're, you're building better or are you just going through them that fast, no matter who puts them on there? No, I, uh, I really feel like whenever I put them on, I, I get a better stick. You know, I put a little bit more glue on the front and the back end, like on top, not just on the the side. And then the prep work, you know, alcohol and the arrow, making sure it's a good clean surface that you're adhering to. I seem to get better luck when I do it myself. But, and then also the main reason I do it is because mid season, if you've broken arrows, you've broken this, you've tore this off, you can come back to the house at night and fix them. And then be back in the woods the next morning, you know, with a full quiver. You're not sitting there thinking, well, dang, that, you know, the shop's closed or what's the name is out of these arrows. Where am I going to get some? You know, I'm, I'm ready to go. Yeah. Well, I got started doing that because I don't know how long ago. Uh, let me try to guess here. Probably 2005, six, something like that. Uh, I was working at Bowie Outfitters with the esteemed Jay James, and Jay had gotten this, um, it was a PSE X-Force. It was their speed bow. I mean, X-Force was really just kind of becoming a thing, and he had gotten this bow, and he wasn't shooting it, so he gave it to me, and it, you know, it was the fastest bow I had ever shot, and I hunted down on the Mississippi River in Mississippi, and we had hogs still to this day more there than anywhere I've ever hunted and I got so tired of wasting my good hunting arrows you know my whatever I was shooting back then wasting arrows on um on hogs and so I'm like you know what I'm shooting a really fast bow so I'm gonna shoot a really big fixed broadhead on some aluminum shafts with some big five inch feather fletchings and just shoot them with a freaking light pole and just see, and it worked. Like, I mean, I was blasting through hogs with that setup, but uh, the point of the story is you. It, it the only way to buy old aluminum shafts that are well-fletched with five-inch feather fletchings are to go to, like, at that time, the only way I could really find them was I was going on eBay. There were a couple people on eBay that were building arrows and selling them, and, um, it was expensive, and so I decided I'm going to start fletching my own arrows so I can fletch these feather, these feather fletchings on these, these uh, these old aluminum shafts, and that's how I got started in it. And I did it, and it, it's it's kind of uh, for me, if I'm being honest, I think I from a performance or a durability standpoint, I I have never seen that much of a difference between my work and just pre-fletched arrows. The pre-fletched arrows shoot pretty much the same. Um, 
with the exception of some kind of radical, you know, radical helical setup or big those big five inch feathers. And durability wise, it it, it kind of all seems to be about the same. But it was kind of cool, and so I thought, you know, with Louisiana bow hunter, um, you know, we sell the hats and the shirts and kind of the brand is what it is and thought that guys that do build arrows might find it cool to be able to put a, a wrap and, and fletchings to kind of uh to support the logo so those are out and available as of today on the website like i said as well as the paracord wrist straps with the leather patch and we're going to do a a camo version of it as well with like a, a kind of a camo paracord so be looking for that that's something new um feel like the timing's right people are getting their bows set up where are you guys at in terms of uh you know as we record this we're a couple of weeks out from the season as this releases it'll be you know getting pretty close to the week before the season opens so where are you guys as far as bow preparation goes we've all been there it's early you're rubbing your eyes drinking your coffee just trying to wake up making that drive to your favorite tree stand and out of nowhere a big doe just has to center your passenger side door The first thought out of your mind, after a few choice words, is let me call my insurance agent. Let Jake Slocum be that call. With five-star claim service and a friendly staff by your side, whether it's auto, home, life, business, or farm, Jake Slocum at American National has you covered. Call or text 318-255-0096 today for a free assessment. Jake Slocum, American National Insurance, more than just your insurance provider. Whether it's your hunting truck, the side-by-side you're pulling behind your truck, your home, life, business, or farm, Jake Slocum has you covered. Call or text Jake Slocum at American National Insurance at 318-255-0096 today for a free assessment. Jake Slocum, American National Insurance, more than just your insurance provider. I mean, I'm I'm basically sitting on go. I, I need to shoot my broadheads a little bit more. Oh. Uh, and put a new sight tape on my bow, but my bow is pretty much sitting on go. I uh, took it and tuned it up a couple of weeks ago at the shop. Got shooting through paper good. Bought a dozen arrows back about a month or two ago and got got them set up so that I'm ready to go with them. As far as my bow goes, I'm I'm almost a hundred percent, which I'm gonna start hunting on the 24th of September in South Arkansas. So I'm gonna get a little bit ahead of everybody. I'm ready. Let me just ask. I don't know how well this is going to work, but just so we know, whose voice is who? Which one is Austin and which one is Trevor? <laughs> this is Austin here. Okay. <laughs> that was me that just talked. I just, I want, I just want to go ahead and identify that before we get too far in the podcast, and not, and, and people that are listening are thinking the same thing as I'm. Like, which one's talking? So, yeah. uh, <laughs> Levi, I know you bought the new, uh, the new Ultra Hoyt Ultra, mm-hmm. and um, yep. what are your thoughts? Compare um, it, like when I say, what are your thoughts? I mean, you're you're one of these, one of the guys that has that in in uh, you know you you can't help it. You have to buy a new bow every year. So compare it to yeah. compare it to yeah. uh, previous. What? Well, some people know this. Hoyt changed their their cam system up. They went to a they got away from the split bus cable 
which, you know, originally, you know, that's used your yokes to yoke tune your bow to kind of get your center shot where you wanted because not every not everybody's going to grip the bow the same and all that. So, you know, traditionally an old yoke-tuned Hoyt bow, as a good rule of thumb, they like a little bit of a left twist, a couple twists in the left yoke normally. Well, on the new bows, they went to, I can't even remember the, the name of the, it's the HBX cam system is what it is, but... What it is, is it's spacer-tuned, which basically that's what Bowtech does and Matthews with their top hat system. But I actually like it better from the standpoint that, okay, all right, you get a new bow, you go to the shop, you paper-tune it, and what you end up having to do is press the bow. If you're getting, if you're getting a tear in the bow, and your center shot set up right, what you have to do is adjust the spacers that sit on the axle. So you got to press the bow, pull the axle out of the limbs, swap the spacers around to get your, your perfect tear. Me personally, um, I had the RX-5 last year. It's the same system. Uh, me personally, I haven't had to adjust the spacers at all. How it comes from the factory is, is how it sheets for me. I, I can get a bullet hole out of it. No problem. So uh, yeah. one, benef- one benefit of that to me as opposed to the yokes is once you once you get it tuned, um, you're not dependent on the string of the – well, the split bus of the cable. Over time may stretch, so it could get out of tune a little bit. But with the spacer system – that spacer's not going to move. So once you get your center set, maybe your time getting off a little bit, you should never mess with the spacers ever again. So I really like that about it. So We used to do this on the podcast um, fairly regular, so I'm going to go back to it. Uh, Austin and Trevor, what, what bows are y'all shooting? Get Kind of give us the brief rundown of each one of your setups. Uh, I'm I'm shooting uh, the RX4 and uh, with Victory Rip TKO Airs and uh, G5 Mega Meat, and that's what I've run for the last year. Or so, which I've I've had the RX4 now. This is my be my third full season going in with it. So, and for all I can tell is it's one of the smoothest bows I've ever laid in my hand, and I'm pretty deadly with it. Yeah, and then I've got the uh, Horde RX-1. I got it back in 18 when the RX come out. It's the Ultra. And uh, it, I'm shooting 80-pound limbs. I'm shooting FMJ uh, with 100-grain arrows, 25 grains up front. And I've shot it, you know, like I said, since 18, so that's five seasons now. I really enjoy it. It's a big bow, and it's heavy, but... I mean, I can I can reach out and get one if it is a long ways, and that's I'm confident with it. And I told my wife I would kill 50 animals with it before I bought a new one, so I'm a little bit committed <laughs> at this point. Okay, so well, wait, wait, wait. So that's the first I've ever heard. I've heard of of a number of different bargaining chip style 
um, things when it comes to purchases as it pertains to hunting and fishing and stuff like that. So where did that come from? Like, how did you come to an agreement of an, of an uh, I'm assuming like a negotiated agreement with your wife that you needed to kill 50 animals before you could buy another bow? I, I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I had not bow hunted a whole lot, honestly, before that season. And, you know, I don't know, that was a chunk of change to put in for a bow. And, you know, up until that point, I had been kind of half-hearted in most everything I had done. So she had to get some commitment out of me. <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm 35 animals in. I got 15 to go. Well, okay. Whatever works, I guess. So yeah. <laughs> are you going to – so all right, so let's fast yeah. forward. I was going to say, you ought to be out there in the backyard slinging airs at rabbits and armadillos and stuff. Yeah. Get your, your toe up pretty quick with that. I know what I got. Uh, I've, I've got an otter on there. I killed a squirrel with it. So, you know, I'm, I'm racking up. So I was like, so I was thinking, um, like, Fast forward to about 45, 46, where you're really kind of narrowing in there to that 50 mark. Are, are you going to feel pressure? Are you going to start shopping between hunts or what? I, I think that's when you get to the point where you just got to turn it loose. Just, you just go ahead and turn it loose every time you get a chance. <laughs> that poor rabbit. I didn't want to shoot you, rabbit, but you're 48. <laughs> I got ch- to check another box. Yeah, you're, you're number 48. We got we got to do what we got to do. So you see, this is why I learned to fetch my own arrows. Because <laughs> I've been running them through treetops, through bushes. If it's palmetto shaking, we roll them. <laughs> well, that that clears that up a little bit. I don't know about you guys, but whenever deer season rolls around, I almost immediately start dreaming of chasing big bucks in the Midwest during the November rut. There's not a better state to do it than Kansas. 180 Outdoors is your Southeast Kansas connection. 180 Outdoors offers free-range fair chase Kansas hunting at its finest in one of the best parts of the country, Southeastern Kansas. They offer guided and non-guided deer, turkey, and waterfowl hunts. But one of the things they do that's very different is they're also land professionals, and they offer leases on proven farms that produce giant whitetails. So if you've ever wanted to have your own Kansas farm where you can run your own cameras, do your own scouting, and get the full Midwest whitetail experience, 180's got a number of Kansas farms listed on their website right now at hunt180.com, or you can give them a call and find out what else they make and hook you up with at 620 325 4093. Guided, non guided, lodging, whitetail, deer, turkey, waterfowl, leases, recreational land purchase, anything you need, 180 Outdoors is your Southeast Kansas connection. Hunt180.com. So we're we're squarely right in the middle of preseason. And, you know, one of the things or not one of the things, I guess the primary thing that we really wanted to have you guys on and talk about was, um, I guess, just some conversation about preseason scouting on public land. And I guess Levi and I come more from the, the private land background, and I'm interested to see, as we get into talking about this, where there might be some parallels and stuff like that. So, um I mean, we're going to start off, you know, uh, with uh, some coordinates on some of your best spots so that that people can uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> so Absolutely. People can follow up with, uh, you know, go see for themselves what it is that you're that you're talking about. No, seriously, <laughs> let's let's kind of start off with like like real basic. You know, it's it's September thirteenth as we're recording this. So let's it's September thirteenth. What are you doing? In a in front, specifically as it pertains to scouting the pro, the the land that you're going to hunt, what are you doing on September 13th? Uh, well, for one, as a lot of things I'm doing is going and finding trees, basically finding oak trees that's going to have a good acorn crop on them that uh that I know of from the past years and. Early season, I try to stay around a food source that's going to be close to bedding because the odds of getting a big deer on its feet, I feel like early season, you've got to be, you're going to have to be within that 100-yard mark. And so for now, what that's what I've been doing is looking for acorns that's going to produce early season close to bedding and um, just staying right along that transition line of the bedding and the feed source there and for one is i don't or even early season i don't i don't stay close to the roads i stay away from it with hunting pressure and all that and but i feel like that the closer you are to a bedding source not even on big deer just on those basically early season the closer you are to the bedding with a food source there i think your your biggest chance comes there Yeah, well, and, go ahead. Well, I, I'm just gonna uh, oh, my uh, I was thinking back last year. So I showed up to a spot. I went ahead of time because I knew, you know, it's kind of like preseason scouting we're talking about here. I just kind of knew to go ahead. I had thought of this spot. In fact, I had left it the year before. So January 31st, 2020. I went to a spot and it was the first time I'd hunted there. Trevor and I actually scouted it out and we knew this one tree we were going to get in and kill. We went and hunted. A buddy of mine came with me. He leg shot an eight point. Wild story. I climbed down out of my tree, rounded the hill and almost got a shot off on another eight point that was there with the one he shot. He was spooked, but I kind of snuck around, tried to pull an Indian trick on him. And so last year I went back to that spot and was thinking I was going to go hunt there again, opening day. And the, uh, the, all of the underbrush in this area of public had been mulched, everything. Like the thickets were now wide open. You could see 400 yards in every direction. The hunting spot, I mean, it was gone. It was completely gone. So, you know, Right now, I mean, just besides looking for the oak trees and stuff, it's going and looking at these old spots and making sure they haven't been tampered with. You know, that was one that was crucial. I really thought I was going to be on to something there. I was thinking, you know, I'm going to spend the first half of my season right here where I left off last year. And it was pointless because I, everything had been mowed down. The deer were out of there. You know, you, you could, could shoot one at 450 with a rifle. You know, so this time of year, I'm spending time going around looking at the old spots, you know, trust the old faithful honey holes, making sure nobody's messed with them. There's not somebody in there pouring corn on public ground or, or got six stands already hung with five cameras on it or something. You know, that 
because last year it let me down. Austin, do y'all, you said putting corn on public land. Do you see, do y'all see that a lot or run into it sometimes? People, you know, hanging cams up on like corn piles on public land. I haven't seen it a whole bunch, but I have seen it. Yeah. Usually with it, usually you'll find it once or twice a season on on public Hmm. land. And a lot of it will be locals. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. That's yeah, it's illegal, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. It's illegal. 100%. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, big time. I mean, you know, and I mean, I, you know, honestly, the cameras are too. Uh, you're not really supposed to have those out, but, you know, everybody runs them, really. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say whether I do or don't or have or have not, but <laughs> I know uh, a lot of people do and get intel on it. <laughs> what is the – okay, I'm kind of – I'm kind of rabbit holing off of this, but the corn makes perfect sense. But what what do you think is the reason why trail cameras aren't allowed on public land? Well, I, you know, there's a five different roads you can travel down on this. I mean, I've actually got a relative who is a, uh, you know, by marriage that's a, a ranger a park ranger and he he despises cameras on uh not a park ranger uh Kisatchee district ranger he despises them he you know he 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 gets upset about them because uh people start to claim ownership of a deer you know and it causes ruckus on there and he's having to settle things between two different people yeah, between them claiming spots yeah. and then them dealing with saying wildlife harassment and um, really, I don't understand that part much on there. But yeah, I, you know, personally, we've ran. I've ran them before. I guess I, you know, I can say in the in the past. Uh, I, you know, and there's some places that there's not really a hard line drawn. Like it's not written out that you can or can't have it on there. You know, on, I will say, like on places like Tinsaw uh, Wildlife Refuge, you cannot. You're not even supposed to have it in your vehicle. Yeah, if they search your truck and you've got it in your truck, you know, you're written up. Um, but other places, WMAs and uh, National Forest land, it's not nearly as enforced. Uh, so, I mean, it just, or at least I say it's not. It's not in my experience. Well, I, 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 can, I can tell you a story that some somewhat plays into this. I Today, I was on the phone with a forestry service person out in Utah going over some some regulations for the area that we're going to be elk hunting next week. And um, there is such a thing as the Protective Wildlife Act of 1984 in the state of Utah. And, and basically what that did was it assigned certain areas of state forest land that are that are open to public hunting as it designated them as protected uh, protective wilderness areas and these protected wilderness areas are supposed to be completely primitive meaning um no electronics now in my discussion with the forestry guy he's like so you know i'm asking (laughs) these obvious questions like well look man i mean 
we're going 20 miles back there on a horse. Are you telling me we can't have a satellite phone? We can't have a personal camera to take pictures, you know, while we're on our hunt? And he's like, uh, I don't really know. He didn't really – he basically referred to, like, you know, this was written in 1984 to keep them from issuing major commercial permits in the area to keep the area primitive. And mm-hmm. and so, like, you know, I can't, I can't help but wonder, like – if if some of that mentality has to do with it, like this is public land and we want it to be as untouched, but but that logic doesn't really make sense. I mean, you're allowing people to to go in there and hunt with modern equipment. It, it's not, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I can understand the loophole that they're trying to close up. That's just like all of us who have kids. You know, if there's a toy that the kids are going to fight over, the best way to stop the fight is to take the toy away. You know. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, you got a trail camera, and then next thing you know, you got a warden out there breaking up a fist fight over two guys because one of them thinks he owns the the area that he put his trail camera in. I get that, like that's just a a mediate, uh, what you call it, a, a mediating device, mitigating potential issues there. But I, I don't know. I, 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 I like you guys said. I mean, a lot of people do it, and I think people that do it a lot have gotten really good at hiding them and, you know, keeping them out of sight and stuff like that. But I don't know. Uh, didn't mean to go too far down that road. I, I'm I, One thing that came to mind when you guys were talking about, you know, what you're doing right now, and, and that really kind of lends itself to, you know, what are you doing to get ready for, for those first hunts, whether it's opening day or, or whenever you first get a chance to go access the public ground that you've been – putting the work in to scout what is in your experience what is your typical like transition period from what you're learning in your scouting today and how long does that kind of hold before you have to start kind of looking at it differently or revamping your strategy whether it be because of pressure or changes in the season and changes in the uh in in what's going on in the woods and and that kind of thing i hope my question makes a little bit of sense Born in the swamps of South Louisiana, Buzzard Roost Saddles fits the need for a more efficient means for trekking the swamps and hunting elevated. What began as a scrappy saddle made of sit-and-drag and paracord has evolved into one of the most innovative and quality saddles on the market today. Buzzard Roost Saddles is a small company located in Santa Maul, Louisiana, catering to those scrappy guys that go the extra mile. Whether it's packing out a rugged country or push-poling a P-road through muddy swamps, Buzzard Roost Saddles are designed with quality and comfort in mind for hunters looking to get elevated and hunt mobile. For a quality hunting saddle made right here in Louisiana, shop online at buzzardroostsaddles.com. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I am, I'm probably the worst about saying, like, here's my strict strategy. You know, I follow, you know, Warren Womack. You know, you, you guys have had him on, and you listen to all his stuff, and his is, strictly like by the minute by the hour and i do that a lot but then i also go back to you know good old faithful places but uh you know as far as with what i'm i'm doing right now you know whenever i show up the first day i'm not like sold out in one spot because i've been burnt so many times of showing up and saying like this i'm going to kill me a good one here and then hunt for you know, six hunts and don't stay a deer when I could have definitely have moved on and killed deer. 
So I, I hardly ever get sold out for one place. I mean, I made first my uh, all of my preseason scouting out the window the first time. <laughs> be honest, you know, uh, it just it just depends because you have to be fluent with it. it you know, I mean, whenever you're hunting a, a private fossil, you know, you kind of you control what happens on it. With that public, I mean, absolutely anything can happen. Trevor can tell you, we've been sitting in the stand have hunted it, you know, 10 days in a row. And then Cujo, uh, Jojo, and uh, Kyle come through on four-wheelers and their buddies and ride right through the bedding area. You know, and that just throws things off for a week. So yeah. you, just, you just never. Especially hunting the, the public there around around home and all. It's, it's being... Like early season, the first the first little piece there, I kind of stay to one little area, as as long as I'm finding what I'm looking for. And, and like, I I hunt I don't hunt buck sign early season. I set on nothing but uh feed. If I can find a feed tree, that's what I'm setting on. If I can find a transition area from bedding to feed, that's what I'm gonna set on. And but like Austin said is. Being being there, you may set it four or five days, and you're you're in the money there. And then out of nowhere, you've got you're dealing with uh, someone's dog that has showed up, or someone in there walking around because they saw your truck parked on the road. And it's just so many different little factors that play into it that cause you to continue to have to kind of change your tactic throughout the season. And you know what's funny is deer are so like they deal with these things. So I mean, I'm not called, I'm not saying I leave a spot because somebody drives through on four wheelers. Like I really don't, but I will change the way that I, that, you know, I, I hunt that area. I may have to start coming in at a different angle, or I may have to just sit it out a week and then and then return. You know, or, or you know, it pushes them out of this little corner of forty. You know, I don't know. You know, say it's an eight acre thicket that you know they're betting in, it may push them out of that thicket and they may travel 400 yards and be in another. You know, the deer don't vacate the place, but they will move according to that pressure. Um, just, and either one of you can answer this, but just say, you, just say you're in one of your signature spots, you know, that you hunt over the years that have deer in it and say some random guy comes walking through the woods and blows them out of the bedding area right there, you know, 100 200 yards from you uh is there kind of a is there kind of like a rule that y'all use for like all right well that guy screwed all this up for us you know we're gonna wait you know three days before we go back in there or how, how, what's your i guess kind of what's your your thinking on that if you if you run into that like you were talking about somebody riding a four-wheeler through there or whatever yeah yeah mine mine is if if I'm in there and I'm hunting and someone comes in and, and kind of and blows blows the bed area up and uh, usually I'll, I'll I'll give it three three to four days and then wait for that that right wind which with wind wise in Louisiana y'all know how it is it, it it'll come <laughs> out of every direction you know so yeah but then I'll, I'll give it a few days I'll go back and see kind of observation hunt the first next two steps just to kind of see 
if the deer's returned or if their pattern has changed. And public land deer here, they're so hard to pattern because they, they just, it's almost impossible to catch him running the same route. And not saying he doesn't do it, but he doesn't, it's just, he doesn't do it every day. And so, yeah, and usually the first two sets are just observation sets after someone's blew the, the bed. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, in each situation, like if I can paint a picture, if I'm sitting in a place and I can see deer and then I see somebody coming into it, watching how they react, man, you know, the more times you're in that situation, the better. So I've seen them where they notice it and they pick up on it and they may bed down or, or, or travel off but then come right back out. And if my wind is not what deterred them, it's just those people, it may not even bother them any. But then, you know, where if they catch wind of that person and that person comes back two, three evenings in a row because they come in and they get to their stand late and they bump the deer that are already out feeding or whatever, you know, that's something where that's going to make a difference. That's going to change it. You know, I mean, uh, the, the different, each situation handles itself differently. I can recall uh, your seven point. Yeah, yeah. So the, you're talking about the one, that one? Mm-hmm. We're sitting in my office, so we're looking at one. Uh, and they were, yeah. People so, coming through the bedding area. Yeah, so the actual four-wheeler trail, for one of the deer that I killed here that we're looking at, it uh, the four-wheeler trail literally rode within, I mean, they were bedding 50 and 100 yards from that four-wheeler trail. And people come by it all morning, all morning. Well, I came in from the backside, and this seven-point, he come out. This was back when I was gun hunting. He come out after, it was probably 8.45, 9 o'clock in the morning, and he come out and just skirted them right on the outside of it out four or 500 yards from the main trail. The hunters were only hunting 100 yards off the trail or so, 150 yards. And I was back down the road in a hard spot to park in, hard ways to walk in. You had to walk in through the thickets, through the, the briars and the, you know, all, all the, the brush. And once I got in there and got set up, here comes this deer. And I mean, came directly from the direction that all the people were coming from. And I was like, what in the world? I was even looking the other direction. I wasn't expecting a deer to come from there. And that was when we learned that they were bedding almost within sight of where all these people were unloading their four-wheelers and easing out. But this deer was coming out of it after they had all come through there in the daylight, just perfect. And I was able to shoot him. And since then, I've I've killed multiple deer in that exact same spot. And with the same amount of people, the same pressure in the same exact spot. So pressure, it affects them all a little bit differently. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And you speaking of a, you know, the deer bedded right there where people are unloading their four wheelers. I remember on our place, this was this happened probably about ten years ago. Me and my dad were driving on the golf cart, just driving on the back road in our property, and uh. We're going across a pipe crossing and just happened to look over here like 25, 30 yards off the road right there. There's a big old briar thicket and looked up there and there was a 10 point. You could see his tines sticking up out of the briar thicket. He was, oh, he was probably 15, 20 yards off the road maybe. And 
everything around it was wide open except that briar thicket and we kind of stopped <laughs> and and all he did was you just saw those times just disappear back down in the briar thicket he never busted out or nothing he just sat there they do that all the yeah. time and the, lot, most lot people of, don't pay enough attention to see it but there are places that you're talking about even on private land that you know right behind the camp or in just some random places that you never even think about that you know a buck will lay up in there and they'll surprise you all the time with that i've seen it a bunch i um i i kind of i grew up learning to hunt on a large a large deer lease back home that was for the most part, probably 60 or 70% of it was bordered by uh, public hunting and the remaining other, other, you know, pretty populated deer lease type things. But when I say large, I mean, I think we had at one point, at the peak of it when I was a kid, like 13,000 acres or something like that. It was really big. But with that, you get a lot of people. You know, you get a lot of members. And so you got you know, 38, 40 members. And I, I can remember as a kid, oftentimes, you know, really nice deer being killed in the most unlikely spots. And you got these guys that are signing out at the camp to go hunt, and they're, you know, driving 30. You know, when you got a place that big, you can go a long ways. They're driving. I mean, they're going so far from their camp that they're actually taking their four-wheeler on a trailer and then unloading it and getting on a road and driving another 10 minutes to get way back in the back of these places um, where, you know, where there was no pressure. And then there's a guy who's, you know, walking 200 yards behind the camp in a hollow and, and, and killing deer. So it it it's overlooked places. And I think, in my opinion, I'm, I, I don't know, how much of this that you might see on on public land, but um, like it's almost like in some ways older deer tend to they they tend to evolve to that. Like they they learn that the hiding in plain sight thing actually works, you know. And I think yeah. that's kind of like what you're saying about about your story uh, about killing a deer and, and being successful in that spot more more times than just that is. You know, I think a lot of times uh, deer just they're they're smarter than maybe we give them credit for, and they realize that um, hiding in plain sight sometimes the best, you know, the best strategy for them to be stay alive. Um, no doubt. Something I wanted to ask y'all because I'll be honest, I've hunted a lot of public land over the years in in different ways but it's been a long time uh probably all the way back to like college uh which unfortunately has been a long time ago now um since i've actually you know really done a lot of scouting and 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 hunting we used to hunt a lot of public ground in college because we you know we obviously didn't have private land where we were going to school so we would we would scout and find places and hunt and, and had success. But since then, in my adult years, most of my public land hunting has been tagging along with somebody who kind of was like, hey, man, I know a good area. We can go in there, and I can point you in the right direction. And I haven't had to do a whole lot of, of scouting. But I can remember 
you know, I just mentioned as a kid, I grew up hunting right next to the Homochitta National Forest and the Sandy Creek Wildlife Management Area in Mississippi. And, you know, you could leave our camp and go riding on the roads and, and you could, you know, just jump across a, a couple of highways there and get on these long stretches of gravel roads that wind their way through these big chunks of public land. And it's like every curve you come around, it's a beautiful ridge or a real pretty bottom or a beautiful creek bottom. And, and you know, back then, um, I didn't really venture off in there except for turkey hunting. I didn't really venture off in there. But I remember thinking there's just such a big expansion of land you know where do you start so from you guys from your perspectives you guys you know when you're looking at a large area for the first time you know like what are some some tips or some ideas that you have for how do you get started and and i'm you know i guess i'm kind of coming at this question um maybe a little bit old-fashioned because everybody wants to use the topo maps and the onyx maps and all that but but if if you're just doing boots on the ground stuff and you're not relying on that so much where do you start when you drive out to a new place and it's really big and you know you see all these places that look like you know that might be it that might be it that might be it where do you where would you start uh that's a good question <laughs> uh well so you know I, I don't, I don't know where the majority of the listeners are from. You know, we're hunting piney wood, hilly country, some flat land stuff with a few bottoms in it. I mean, and I, I spent a good amount of time in, uh, in flat oak bottoms as well. But, uh, I don't know. Whenever I, whenever I'm thinking about this, as I drive. So that's, that's my main deal. I'll, I'll do a lot of looking from the vehicle. And I'll take note when a doe crosses the road. It's like she's there. She's standing in that spot for a reason. So if you've spent any amount of time where you're walking on public land and you've seen any deer, then you have an advantage. You need to start. I mean, if you've only seen one deer on it, start there. Figure out why that deer was there. And, like, don't, you know, run into this big hypothesis about why that deer was there and it was thinking this. No, it was there because it's got a travel route. It's going from bedding to food. And this is where it felt comfortable. You know, it's not really this big drawn out thing. Cause I can tell you, I like to think they reason a lot of the times, you know, but they don't, they just, they work off instinct and they go where they feel comfortable. Uh, so, I mean, first is if you've got any experience at all is go where you've seen deer before and start there. If you've seen any, now, if this is your first time going, uh, dirt roads especially when you get in the bottoms and near the creek side slow down and pay attention to the gravels look for the deer crossings look for the tracks that's a big thing and then i'm thinking of edges when you are traveling through a type of forest that is the same exact thing forever now i don't know if anybody's talked about this i feel like they have but stem count stem count is the amount of vegetation stemming, you know, stems sticking up from the forest floor. So if you're in an area where, you know, in a square foot, you have one or zero stem count, that means you can see a pretty good way through the, through the woods. But then it, the transition will be from zero to one to five to seven, where you've got bushes coming up 
in every square foot everywhere. And right where that edge is, deer are going to travel. And, you know, of course, they're going to bed in the thicker of that. So you're going to want to start there, walk along the edge there, and look for trails going in and out. Look for the beat down stuff. Um, watch for those edges. And then walk the, the creek bottoms and look for the deer crossing the road. Look for the tracks crossing the road. Those are probably my biggest up front. Hmm. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, and Trevor's saying that's the same thing he does. You know what I mean? As far as tiny woods, I know, you know, oak bottoms are a little bit tougher. You know, with oak bottoms, I would say, you know, a lot of times deer, if, if it's really like a true oak bottom where it is the exact same for five, six, seven, eight hundred yards down through there, and deer have almost nowhere to bed because the canopy covers the forest floor. You have no stem count. You can see the whole way through there. You're going to have to find the blowdown areas where uh, oak trees have, have, have been blown over three or four in an area where like a, you know, a small tornado touched down or a gust of wind blew down four or five trees, and they're going to be bedded in those thickets where the canopy got busted open and you were able to grow some vegetation on the forest floor. Those are going to be the areas that you want to start in the oak bottoms. Uh, you know, but anytime you see a transition from one type to the other, that's huge. So, go ahead, Levi. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll second just about everything you said right there. And I will add this too that and this is unpopular Southern deer hunter opinion, but oak bottoms like massive oak bottoms are highly overrated in my opinion as far as having success especially with mature deer from the standpoint that you're talking that you're talking about that there is no cover you know in in and it's always been my opinion the most important thing that a deer needs is security cover with security cover comes food there's always going to be food in that security cover that they can mill around on all all hours of the day. So I completely agree with everything you just said. I think um, something that that is kind of interesting to to kind of to bring up in this conversation that that I think people listening, some people uh, listening may may be able to relate to is is a lot of guys that are let's take the hunter the example of a hunter who has spent the majority of their hunting life on one or or maybe a couple of pieces of private ground and within the confines of that private ground there's not a lot of diversity you know i mean you you have a 300 acre piece of, of property that you lease or that you own and it's pretty much all the same thing because it was bought and purchased that way or it's timber managed that way or whatever and then you venture off into public land and you may be looking at um much more diversity not to say that there aren't lots of public ground like you said that just go on and on kind of the same thing but um you know Mm -hmm. just from hearing you guys talk it's obvious that that some of the places that you hunt, you're experiencing this diversity between the the piney woods and the hardwood bottoms and the flatlands and the hills and the hollows and all that. So um, something that's kind of interesting to me, I think, would be 
something good to, to maybe comment on is throughout the season, do you see or have you identified any sort of pattern for how deer are using that diversity as the season changes? Well, I mean, I, I can think of something right now. So, uh, some of the woods that we hunt, we've got this uh, uh, French mulberries or what is it, American beauty berries. Yeah, I've called them French mulberries since I was born. But. Yeah, American beauty berry, French mulberry, and, and the pineapple. Do what? Yep. I'm sorry. I thought I was muted. <laughs> beauty berry, that's, yep. We got a bunch of that where I live. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry I interrupted you. Yeah. So early season, they're loaded with leaves and then the berries. But then late season, you know, they get almost where it's like literally you go there in January you can see 200 yards where you could not see 50, you know, in early season. And that changes it a lot. Um, yeah, because they use, they use that as bedding, food source for early season. But then once you start rolling on into the winter months, that all starts changing so the deer start moving. And because the later you get in into the fall, the less of those you're going to see. And then you gotta you gotta swap to basically an, an acre and crop that you can find, and if the hurricanes don't destroy everything you got, but uh, just those little pieces there of the early season swap from basically a browse standpoint to acre and a late season acre and crop. And you got the uh, I'm I'm thinking another thing for somebody who's who's coming in from something that where they've had, you know, almost monotonous, something with more diversity. The hard changes are big, but where people miss, because see, like I think, you know, I don't know if you guys feel like this elephant in the room, but it's like you got, you've got two different types of bow hunters. you got the guy who pours a bag of corn out on the ground, you know, a couple times a year, start getting a few pictures, they get fired up, they go get in that deer stand, they shoot them dough. A little buck comes out and feeds. They get that one. You know, what we're talking about is, you know, deer completely 100% naturally using this area. Like, there's absolute, like, you got to figure out why they're walking this direction. And the subtle changes are the things that we start to notice now that, you know, as, as we're, you know, aging in this and learning it is the, the difference in brush from a, from, um, you know, a foot and a half height on the ground to four and a half foot, that little bit of a change, you know, you might not think of it as much. And it may not be, but for a six foot wide span on a 200 yard street, you don't notice it at first. But after you've watched deer walk that same path three or four times, you're like, hey, man, there's something to do with that. Like, there's a reason they're traveling that. What's the difference? It's the subtle change. And it's not that from a clear-cut thicket that's five or six years old to a an SMZ type change. It's literally a foot and a half of vegetation growth. Yeah. You know, that's the things that if you can key in on those, then you'll you'll be able to kill those deer without without needing the food source necessarily, or needing you know 
whatever it is, the natural food source or the corn, you're going to need to notice these things if you're going to get serious about it. And leaving that, you know, that private ground where everything looks the same, that's the, the difference between someone who goes on that land and knows they're going to kill a deer. Everything does not look the same. Everywhere, there's subtle changes, very subtle. Things that you almost, you, you know, you blink and you miss it. Those are the things you're going to have to key in if you want to get to where, instead of seeing that buck at 120 yards through your binoculars, you're able to get him within 40 and, you know, make a move on him. And even then, you might not kill him. You know, that's 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 the most difficult part of, of public land hunting is the subtle changes and being able to know exactly where that deer is going to walk. Yeah. Is it, I, I, maybe, maybe some of the answer to, to what I'm going to ask is, is, is kind of intermingled amongst some of what's already been said, but, you know, a lot of it obviously revolves around the food source that it is kind of the X for, for why the deer is in this area to begin with, but, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk to be had about when it comes right down to the actual moment of, uh, you know, you've got a deer approaching into bow range. It, it It is, I think most anyone that's, that's an experienced bow hunter would agree, it's easier to kill deer when they're passing through than it is to kill deer on a feed source because generally speaking, they tend to be a little bit more wary when they, when they're, when they're standing still feeding at least in, in my experience and some conversations that I've had. But I'm, I'm curious on, on public ground. I mean, you guys are talking a lot about food source and identifying it and learning to, to understand it. it. You know, how often do you sit? I mean, Trevor, I know you mentioned earlier that you're, you're sitting that food source a lot. That's a lot of your strategy. But how much does that vary when you get to where, it, it, it might be easier or more effective for you in the moment to figure out the travel to and from and not get on the food source, but get on the travel itself. Yeah. Like setting the food. So I, I agree a hundred percent as deer are always a little more on edge along that food source when they're there feeding and, and, and instead of like when they're just, you catch a deer cruising between bedding and, and a food source. And I, I've noticed over the years I've set a food source a lot and been busted a, a ton on sitting on a food source because of them being that just little instinct edge to them of they're there and then they know something's not right. And I've noticed over, over the years, though, with them doing that, I'll set it a handful of times and and kind of just watch what the deer do and as I watch what they do I'll adjust to moving an extra 50 yards to, to be ahead of these deer before they get to the food source to where I stand a better chance of having an opportunity of getting Drew back and and getting it done without getting busted so Yeah, I. This is, this is a little bit of, I guess you could call it advice for you know people that do hunt private land. If you hunt on a lease or 
some own land or whatever that's heavily fed as far as like corn and you know people hunting over corn all the time if you what what happens to people is you know they may just say they're hunting 500 acres and you know they over that 500 acres they may have just say five stands 100 100 acres per stand or whatever uh one thing that happens to people and you hear people talk about it all the time but they don't realize when it's happening to them themselves that you know if you're hunting the same five stands all year, the deer know where those stands are at. They are patterning you. If you can stop for a second and okay, well, you know, I've been, I've hunted these same three stands for the past four weekends, you know, go get a saddle or mobile lock on move around because those deer, if you hunt a, if you traditionally hunt the same property and have your same stands Will you get lucky and catch a buck chasing a doe by you sometimes? Yes, absolutely. But for the most part, where those permanent stands are at, I can 100% guarantee you that those deer, especially those mature bucks, are spending their days elsewhere, away from that spot for the most part. So, yep. Yeah, to me, that's the, the hardest part about when I look at the, the public land hunting game and, and how I would go about pre-scouting to hunt it and how I would go about planning and scouting strategically throughout the season to hunt it is, and it comes from just, you know, uh, human nature of, you know, leaning on what you're comfortable with and what you best understand. And, and I know my, my, my comment's going to come from that place, but not, not having the uh i guess kind of the crutch of knowing what's going on when i'm not there so like the things that that levi's just talking about um am i am i seeing really good sign or identifying something that's very promising to me but what i don't know is uh what's happening all the days that i'm not around and so am i'm you know, the deer that I'm after are becoming more and more educated by the day. And so I'm basically just spinning my wheels. And, and that's, I, I guess I, I'll say this. I tip my hat to you guys that, that stick with it. And, and even with some of the things that you've said, uh, here in this conversation, I can just feel my blood boiling if I were in your situation, because, you know, you put in the work, you put in the effort, you, you have the time to go do what you want to do. And then, you know, like you said, um, the three stooges come blowing through at 4 PM on, on four wheelers and, and this and that, and the other thing. And that, I mean, I guess kind of a final thing as we start to wind down on time. I mean, I think, you know, uh, it's interesting to me anyway, is if you have any kind of, advice or tips or how do you how do you mentally prepare yourself for the inevitability of that unknown and and that you know wrench that is inevitably going to get thrown into your plans at some point be it be it the preseason scouting that you're doing or throughout the season as you're as you're moving around i mean is there is there you just learn to tolerate it or is there or is there something else that you can pin it on or what How uh, how deep do you want to get on this subject? Because I mean, 
<laughs> deep as you want to get because <laughs> I can tell you I, I I turned down plenty of 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 fun and interesting opportunities to go, especially during turkey season, to go and explore some some new public access and hunt it. And I don't do it because I just kind of like I'm a married man, so I don't go out to the bars on Thursday night because I don't I don't put myself in situations I know I'm not going to handle very well. You know. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you. I mean, I, honestly, like seriously, I, like it. You have to become stoic. Like stoicism plays a part in this for me. Like seriously, I have to just know that. God loves me and he's going to take care of me no matter how dumb this dude is that's coming, that's coming at me and driving right through this. Like, you know what? It's okay. (laughs) For, For instance, last year, man, I went in and climbed up. It was an, it was the opening day gun season. I climbed up in this spot and I carried my bow and I had my orange on and I went without a light the moonlight was kind of bright got climbed up uh got my coffee out poured me a cup of coffee and i'm hunting out of a saddle so i'm facing my tree and it's before daylight and i lean out around my tree just to kind of check my surroundings out in front of me and i look 40 foot from me is a guy asleep in his climbing stand and i have just walked in here it got wrestled up in this tree i know he heard me and i and i uh i holler and i go hey hey and he didn't do anything finally i stopped this like you know whisper holler and i go hey he barrels up out of this stand picks his head up huh huh yeah yeah i said dude are you kidding me you didn't see me or hear me you couldn't shine your light or something i heard something i thought this raccoon <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I said, man, you have, I'm getting down. And I went back to my truck. Y'all going to frown on this a little bit. I got my rifle and uh, I went across the road and went and hunted. Ended up seeing like three eight points and killed an eight point with my rifle. And uh, <laughs> meant, meant to be kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it was like you know, I just you got to kind of just take a breath and go. Uh, you know, this is a part you, you got to play. If you're going to play the game, this is a part of the game. So it's just a part of it. So this guy, yeah. this guy just went in there really, really early and was just sleeping, waiting on daylight. Yeah, yeah, he went in. You know, like I said, it was opening day arrival season. So go ahead. It's so many of them that do that that they just park and go in blind and just climb a tree and. And when the gun season's open, you know, we've been up there for three, four weeks with our bows and we're really trying, you know, we're really starting to get this spot locked down and then the gun season opens and then there you are crawling with people and it, it's, you're sitting, you're in there early sitting in the stand, you're seeing seven, eight flashlights coming through the woods and, you know, it's discouraging sitting there thinking, oh yeah, you know, this is going to be a bust. But a lot of them play a part in getting deer on their feet with as much human activity as is in the woods because these people, they're just barreling down through the woods and climbing up and hunting. And they're walking through bedding areas. These deer are going to get on their feet and start moving to try to find something 
where they feel secure and, you know, and out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, and if you spent the time to get in the right spot to find the travel You just got to trust your – if you – if you've done the work and you're in, in the good areas, like if you hang in there, uh, you know, that deer that, that knows that travel route, if you're the one hunting it, even though you see people three, four, five hundred yards away from you, that deer will slip right around. Them. Just like that one, you know, that I killed leaving that bedding area right next to the four-wheeler trail. They'll come right around them. And, and when they want to get there. Yeah. Well, yeah, Trevor killed uh, 150. This was back, you know, in the rifle hunting days before we started bow hunting um, but I, I killed this deer this deer was 152 inch eight point and i killed him literally 100 yards from a campground that had about 16 campers in it with people hooping and hollering around it <laughs> and it was but another thing that referred back to deer laying right under i mean they're right under your nose and you're just overlooking them and and walking off but this was a part i seen eight deer that morning, seen three bucks and all these deer are within sight of these people that come there, you know, and, and so the deer and the seven point I killed the day before he killed that eight point actually was, uh, you know, I was right there within 600 yards or so. And I was within sight of the same campers and in between the campers and then the four wheeler trail. So, uh, yeah. It, it's just a part of it. you got to learn to deal with people and deal with the pressure. And like you said, <laughs> how deep do you want to go? I'll just say this. You know, I'm reading my Bible a lot of days in the deer stand, getting to know Jesus a little better. <laughs> just in case. <laughs> <laughs> well, do, you, uh, do, y'all, do y'all too have some luck, uh, you know, getting close to rifle season, seeing a lot more people up in the woods? Do y'all have a lot of luck, you know, not necessarily going, you know, entering the woods at mid-morning you know but getting there you know as you normally would for morning and sit and then sit until two or three o'clock and i mean do you see a lot of midday activity like that or not really yeah yeah a lot of times the closer the later october you get the closer on into november around that gun season mark uh i've noticed over the years has been that 10 that 10 to 2 set has i've I've had a lot of success in that 10 to 2 set. And it's everyone's in early and they leave. Most people set till 10 and they're gone. Yep. Once once, once the wood's quieting down, these deer get back on their feet. They're not just going to stay locked down all day long. They're going to get up and move. They're going to be up doing things, especially with it being closer to the rut and then bucks getting back up and cruising. And I've had some success. I, I killed an eight point. Uh, a few years back, and I, I said I sat in there all morning and hadn't seen nothing, but all these people I'd seen walking out, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to stay and sit and see what happens from 10 to 2. And 11 o'clock rolled around, and here he come, right behind a doe, right in there on me. I killed him, which could have been luck of the, you know, him following a doe, but hadn't seen a deer all morning and still did once everyone had left. Look, so it may It may not be him as much as it was her. You know, she had yeah, she had stayed kind of hunkered down as long as she could take it, and she had to get up and move around, and he came with her, you know? Interesting. No doubt. I, I can't take time. We, you know, we'll, we'll get <laughs> reports, somebody call, be heading in for lunch, something. Man, I've seen a good one. Crossing you know, the road. Crossing yeah, the road. 11.30 in the day. 
Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, you did. And we were still sitting in deer stand. Should have been sitting on the road. Or, a lot of times we've, we've stayed and cooked breakfast and met up and go and pile in the woods at 9 o'clock and get in a tree and hunt, you know, that early evening time and then get down and go home or stay till dark. And it's paid off with us. So Yeah. Well, it's been an interesting conversation. Uh, I don't know if we stayed completely on the preseason topic, but we did get some some talk about a little bit of that um in 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 the, in the first part of our conversation but um as we begin to wrap up i just if if want to kind of give each of you the opportunity if there's anything else you'd like to add or or just any kind of final words you'd like to to give to 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 people that that might be listening and and trying to figure out you know some of what you guys have experienced in in your time hunting this way Uh, well, I mean, as you guys heard with the 50 animal story, I when I committed to a bow on public land, that's when I started learning how to do hunting. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we talk about it, you know, bow, bow hunting in Louisiana is elite, and, and it def- most definitely is. But when it comes to public land, bow hunting in Louisiana, it is elite. I mean, you've got to be dedicated. You've got to be sold out. And you will learn more public land bow hunting, deer, just deer activity and deer movement in itself. If you'll commit to it and don't do anything but it, you'll learn more about deer in a a few weeks than you will in a lifetime doing anything else. And I encourage everybody to do it, to to make the leap, buy your, you know, you don't have to have a big, nice bow and commit 50 animals. You know, the first couple of deer I killed was with a, a Dart in 1990-something model bow, and I killed, you know, on public land, from the ground, without a blind. It was my first deer. You can do it. You just, you gotta, you just gotta commit to it. Get out there and hunt, spend the time in the woods. Yeah, that, that, that's it. Is If you wanna, you wanna kill deer with a bow, you gotta take the bow and do it. You just, you gotta get out there, keep your mind, you know, forward, don't, don't, don't get discouraged because you're going to have the, the down part, you know, and you got to keep your mind, keep driving, keep doing it. And I mean, you're going to find success. The more you do it, the, the better you're going to get at it and, and learn and be willing to learn from each, each set that you go out or each scouting trip, be looking for something else to learn that's new and, and just keep your head up and, Keep driving forward with it. Well, that's good advice. Le- Levi, uh, go ahead. I, you, I was fixing to ask you if you had anything else, but I stepped on you. Go ahead. Yeah, I had one more question uh, I wrote down before we, when we decided to talk to you two guys. Uh, I see, I, I do see Austin post a fair amount on his story every year uh, with you two guys filming together. Um, you know, we got that, we're going to do that film contest uh through deer season this year um i just want y'all to kind of just briefly explain to anybody listening to this kind of just in layman's terms we don't have to spend 15 minutes talking about it but you know just kind of your your filming setup how you guys set up in the tree you know does y'all use you know saddles lock-ons you know obviously you put one set of sticks up climb up the camera guy's probably above you but uh Explain that real quick, please. 
Well, uh, I'll say Trevor's done more of it than I have. But, I mean, we stay pretty mobile. So, I mean, we're both now – last year was really my first season in a saddle. And I, when I put it on the first first hunt, I hunted out of it. I killed a deer with it, and I committed to it. So, we're both pretty much saddle committed at this point. It makes it easy. We, uh, I don't know necessarily we hunted out of the same tree in saddles while filming. No, the the last few times that we had filmed, usually we run, Austin usually runs a, a M7 Millennium, and I was running the saddle, and I used a fourth arrow, uh, tree arm, and uh, fluid head. Well, I got also I, I run a tactic cam I bring with me for just a different angle, and we run one set of six like you. Was, thing earlier and that where we just we can jump around really fast if we need to get down and we see deer traveling a different area we can jump down and move in 30 minutes we're set up and ready to go again i can tell you uh filming is it's got to be the it's, most it's challenging, challenging part of it all I, I i almost hate it a video camera has saved a lot of deer's life <laughs> no doubt oh i can i can i can Attest to that <laughs> for sure yep well we're getting towards the end of our time and uh i just want to say thank you for you guys taking the time to jump on here and, and and talk with us it's been a been a good conversation um i just want to encourage everybody as we wrap up to to go out to louisianabowhunter.com check out some of the new merch and gear that we have out there and uh levi mentioned the film contest and we we talked about that a couple weeks ago in the in the first episode of the season and we haven't gotten back to you but we are going to get back to you i actually just made myself a little note when he said that that we need to we need to get on the ball and figure out exactly how that's all going to work out so be looking for some details about that coming very soon i want to give everybody plenty of time before october the first to 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 kind of make their plans for that and um so with that being said austin and trevor thank you so much for joining us again levi uh, thank you for joining me, I guess. Am I supposed to tell you thank you? Or is this no. obligatory at this point? But, uh, but joining us. Yeah. So jo- joining, joining us, however you want to yeah. put that. But, uh, the, thanks everybody for, for the support and for uh, following along. Hey, take a minute to go out if you haven't and join the LABH community on Facebook and, uh, contribute there. Um, contribute in a nice way we don't like to have to moderate it too much but we do want people especially as the season gets going um people to tell stories and share share uh whatever info they're willing to share but um just kind of have a community where like-minded guys and gals and bow hunters in general can can kind of enjoy the greatest time of the year it's right around the corner it'll be here before you know it so uh thank you again for listening and we'll talk to you next week Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.